Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi. You're listening to the Wheel Suckers Podcast. My name is Alex. I look after social media marketing and events at Look Mum No Hands. And I'm usually joined by my stoker, Jenny, the director of the London Bike Kitchen. And I'm in the car park of the Bespoke Frame Builders Festival because I really wanted to get this out ASAP. So please bear with me. <laughs> you are going to listen to a live recording of the Bikes and Bloomers book launch that we held at Look Mum No Hands. So I want to say a massive thank you to Kat for thinking of us as the place to host it. Sarah from Goldsmiths, Emily, Laura, Bruce, who are on the panel, and a special thank you to you, friends, who came to the event. Thank you so much. So don't forget, link below. You can buy the book and find out more. We're going to play that for you now. Welcome. It's so great to see all of you. Um, this book is a culmination of a lot of work, about five years pretty much, of thinking, uh, of writing, of reading, of making things, of collaborating, of dressing up, of overheating at events, <laughs> of, of performing and talking, and lately she feels like I've been doing an awful lot of media, even though I know it's only been a very short period of time. The book is published by Goldsmiths Press and distributed by MRT, and Goldsmiths Press really took a chance with this book. They were open to one, and they really encouraged me to write differently to my unusual academic style. And after a very small existential crisis about it, I um, found that it was possible and actually enjoyed it most of the time. So I want to hand over very briefly to Sarah Kenda, the staffer and heads up Dalton's Express, to say a few words about it. Yeah, so I, uh, I run Dalton's Express, uh, uh, very pleased to take on the task of the fact Publishing, uh, like somebody was asking about Ryan Ashby, I knew that it would cross into areas that we were interested in around gender technology. I also knew that it was going to do it in ways that most people have done. A lot more based on what we invented. It would not just be running up, filling a gap in our knowledge of the relationship between women and sliding on fashion invention. But doing it through uh, what happens in Benson methods, so it's a really quite creative approach to doing research where you get a 
with the jibs, my cat, as you know, uh, uh, remakes <laughs> the clothes that were designed in the 19th century and models them, forms this model uh, of being a sort of Victorian lady cyclist who is, you know, encounters with those awful social norms of the century, those encounters with prejudice um, remain unfortunately uh, very relevant uh, for us today. So you could live see the appeal of this book uh, within academia, but also away from it. I mean, uh, there is more press of how we kind of invest more of the money in each project. We have such a strong sense of, I don't know, ownership that we tend to think that we our book. <laughs> I have to convince myself every time it's no, you know, put it down. Um, it's not yours. Um, if we added anything, and I think, you know, it, it, very little, but I think what we did do is we knew that this would have uh, appeal way beyond uh, various academic departments uh, to the bodies, to the cycling community, and, and way beyond that. Um, the press itself tries to be inventive, we are definitely making a stand, we are trying to resist some of the restrictions on scholarly publishing at the moment, as Pat said, we encourage them to write differently, we're very interested in things that cross over from academia into a sort of more general uh, audience. Um, and we're, you know, to be honest, we're a little bit egoistic about this. We're mixing it up left, right, the centre, trying to do something against commercial publishing, trying to do something against restrictions imposed by our horrible search audit, which is what we know about. Recipe really shouldn't care. Um, but it means that we that we do things that that you don't normally do anymore. We publish pamphlets and manifestos. Poetry, original fiction, do everything we're not really allowed to do in the UK University Press Publishing. But what actually did for Cat is very professional, which is the justification for publishing in, in the digital age, really, whenever one is published, is that you add value by quiet, but also by simply distributing and amplifying the research. And given the current storm around Cat's book, I think it's the time to telegraph the Guardian. The Daily Mail. We'll brush over that one. The Atlantic. I know. I know, but we'd like to irritate them if we possibly can. The Atlantic Sky News this morning, and the net itself got involved. Anyway, so far so good. Take that. This is, folks, this is a landmark book. It's a landmark book for cats. It's a landmark book for press, and I think for the field. So we encourage you all to buy the book. Of course, it's there. And to very much enjoy it. Thank you, Sarah. So, I have asked the panel of speakers to talk about their own work and also in relation to the importance of doing the story, the home stories about cycling. But before I ask them to talk, I'd like to talk a little bit more. Don't talk enough today. So I am going to tell you just a little bit about the project, and it will be um, new for some of you and very new to others. But I want to tell you that it's about early Victorian women cyclists. It's about the history of patenting and invention, and about new forms of cycle wear in late nineteenth-century Britain. So it's pretty much a story about what early Victorian women cyclists started to wear when they started to cycle, and about how they designed radical new forms of cycle wear in response to um, restrictions to their um, freedom of movement. 
So my research really focuses on a, a really small period of time in the UK, 1895 to 1899, but it was a radically um, exciting time of change, lots of technical, social and change and a huge cycling craze swept through the nation and middle and upper class women were enthusiastic early adopters of the bicycle. However, there are a number, as we know, restrictions that really um, um, made it difficult to start cycling. The role of women in society was very much oriented around um, uh, the bearing and carrying of children and located in one place, being the home. They weren't encouraged into education or into politics or business. Um, exercise was deemed um, unnecessary um, for middle and upper class women, even though things were changing toward the end of the century, but it was kind of seen by some medical professionals as being un uh, unnecessary and even unhealthy and detrimental to a woman's matrimonial duties. They were, um, in ordinary fashions, really reflected a lot of those ideas. So although there are a lot of different styles, uh, women were ostensibly wearing long, uh, straight skirts, uh, lots of heavy petticoats, up to seven pounds of layers of petticoats, um, tight tailored um, uh, corsets, um, and tightly kind of fitted blouses, jackets, veils, gloves, hats, and even more. So um, together, these really limited a woman's um, social material and um, political mobility. However, nothing was going to stop them from cycling, which is really good for us today. <laughs> Um, and have the experience, and we can barely imagine what it must have been to have that unparalleled um, freedom and independence that was promised by the bicycle at this time. But as you can imagine, their conventional dress was vastly incompatible with the moving machinery of the bicycle. But to dress in more rational clothing, such as replacing your skirt with a pair of bloomers, might have been safer and more comfortable, um, but it could expose the wearer to um, verbal abuse and even kind of physical assault. They had things thrown at them, they were caused, called terrible names, they were um, denied entry into places. Um, you had to be very brave um, at certain times at the 1890s to um, look like a cyclist, let alone look, um, to ride a bicycle, let alone look like a cyclist. So the sight of a, a woman on a bicycle, what she was wearing, swiftly became um, the sight of much larger about women in um, society. So I started to look in the archives to explore the spectrum of creativity with which women responded to these restrictions on their freedom of movement and found an amazing amount of treasure. Um, I looked particularly at patterns because it turned out that women, um, uh, pioneering women, not only imagined, made, and wore radical forms of cycle wear, but they also patented their designs, which is amazing for a researcher that lives over a century later. So I've been particularly struck by convertible cycle wear. And these were garments that did pretty much what sounds like they did. They were look like you weren't a cyclist and they converted into cycle wear and then back again. So the designers um, built in, engineered technical systems into their skirts, into the very infrastructure of their dresses to enable them to um, secretly switch between mobile identities. Um, and I, the book is pretty much about five women who I think designed quite radical um, convertible kind of garments. But we really wanted to see these in action when we first found the patterns. We were unable to find any in museums and galleries, so that's when I got this opportunity to work directly from the patterns, follow in the um, footsteps and the words of the women who lived 120 years ago, and reproduce a number of their garments. And I worked with this amazing team of people to do that. So, um, would you like to see one of them in action? Yeah. Yeah. So. 
I'm actually wearing um, a bygrave. I'm wearing a garment that was um, patented by Alice Louisa Bygrave from Brixton, a dressmaker, in 1895. And um, she clearly wanted a dress that looked um, not out of place on the high street, at this wooden trap at the time. Um, but she also wanted to cycle, but not necessarily be visibly identifiable as a cyclist. So she did the quite astonishing thing of um, uh, building a pulley system into the front and rear of the skirt. So pretty much is Victorian engineering meets cycling that's clothing. And to know a little bit about her background completely makes sense because she came from the Watson Clockmaker family in Chelsea. Um, she was a dressmaker herself and so was her mother. And her brother and sister-in-law were professional racing cyclists. And the picture on the front of the book is actually her sister-in-law in her costume. So um, it's made up of... Uh, uh, it works, it works. Um, and it not only kind of um, kind of works materially like this, but it got picked up by Yoga the Fashion House. It was distributed all around the UK, it made its way to the US, got a lot of patents on it. And it was even sold in Sydney and Melbourne. So it really kind of did um, get out there. It was used, it was bought, it was made. So um, so why is this important? Why have I been telling these kind of stories? Um, I think there's a lot of reasons, and I outline even more of them in the book. But pretty much these women were motivated by so many different things. So I certainly don't try to assume that I know everything that they, why they were doing these things. Some of them were dedicated rights activists. Some of them were business women. Some of them just wanted to ride their bikes without harassment. Um, but regardless of these motivations, what unites them, I think, is kind of a key point in what I've been doing, is that it highlights the important role that women played in early cycling cultures, not just as um, uh, ornamental or passive bystanders, but as engineers, as designers, and as inventors. And this is really important because when women are accounted for in the technologies of history or in uh, the histories of cycling, which is actually not very often, um, they tend to be cast as partial actors. You know, with few exceptions, they're often rated as being caught up in waves of technical change as symbols of social upheaval rather than as capitalists of it. So in contrast, what I think what the patents really tell us, and I hope what my research really brings to light, is women as critically engaged citizens actively driving social and technical change. So, so now to the panel. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm very pleased to have three amazing people who may be already familiar to many of you because they are experts in the fields that they are involved in. Um, I've asked them each to speak about um, 10 to 15 minutes something in relation to the book that relates to their own work or practice around the questions of why do stories or representations of women's cycling matter? Why is it important? And we have Bruce Bennett, who is a senior lecturer in film studies from Lancaster University. Um, he's currently almost finished a brand new book, and it is on film and cycling, and it's called Revolutionary Films, Cycling and Cinema, and it's due to be published by Goldsmiths Press later on this year. <laughs> Emily Chappell um, is the founding member of the Adventure Syndicate and the fastest woman in the 2016 transcontinental race. She is the... 
She's the author of What Goes Around, a fantastic book about South Korean in London. And she's um, she's currently working on her next book, which she might tell us the working title of. She might do. Um, and we've got Laura Laker, who is a journalist who's written for so many things, pretty much everything now, right? All of them, a full trifecta of all of them. Um, she covers lots of incredibly important critics. It's not just on cycling, but the cycling stuff is incredibly important. And she is not shy about um, challenging, about being provocative, and I'm um, going head to head with MPs, right? True. <laughs> so I'll hand over to them now to talk about 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll have questions, and then we'll do some things. <laughs> so I met Kat the year before last week writing the treatment I the first draft of this book. Um, I was working on this related project on cycling cultures and we recognised this was a, a comrade in our friend. Um, reviewed a later draft of the book and invited her to give a keynote Manchester last year, which was the standout presentation of the event, part the part performance art. Um, and it's really pleasing to see that the book having Taken form in the last couple of years and um, finally appearing in its published form. What's impressive and, and enviable about Cat's work is her ability to take what's potentially very dry material, which is painstaking archival study of Victorian documents, adverts, journals, diary entries, um, and bring it to life. Um, and she does this through the detail of which she examines the material. It's a very good example. Research, um, digging through the archives, as she puts it, but as she writes, it also invites us to look differently at the past. The history that she's recounting is one that's been buried, one that's more or less invisible, because histories of technological development have tended to focus on grand projects, great pioneering inventors, and moments of dramatic change, rather than, for example, small scale innovations that might have incremental, far reaching influence. Um, certain forms of creative labour and rubbers, but as pikes and bloomers reveals, women were extremely industrious and creative in coming up with solutions to the problem of how to make something socially accessible and enjoyable for women. Um, standard histories of the bicycle pay very little attention to women cyclists, whether as athletes, everyday cyclists, inventors, or manufacturers, women played an important role in classical assembly in um, British factories because their smaller hands were much uh, better at putting ball bearings into casings, for example. They're everywhere. In America, obviously, the history of the bicycle. Histories of the bicycle were tended to disregard women, despite the fact that in 1895, the height of the cycling boom in Britain, more women's bicycles were manufactured than men's. Um, I've been doing research on cycling on film. The earliest film I've come across that features women cycling is an 1896 film cyclists um, uh, riding through Hyde Park. Um, and it's a cycling film because the women cyclists out there the men. And they're riding faster, they're overtaking them. Um, and they're probably wearing convertible clothing, some of them. It's an image of British, Victorian British society that challenges our assumptions about the past. And the value of this book is that it does precisely that, writing women back into the social and technological history of the bicycle. It's an exceptionally necessary piece of feminist work. 
And as Kat explains, the image of a woman on a bike is an enduring sign, so the optimism of first wave feminism, bicycles with a power tool, suffragettes and temperance campaigners and the new woman of the 1890s and 1900s. They allowed women to travel independently and unchaperoned. And the value of revisiting this history is that it reminds us that when we're thinking about something, like Lance Armstrong said, it's not about the bike. It's about gender, sexuality, political agency, and inequalities of movement and access to public spaces. Um, so Kat asked us to consider why representations and stories of women cycling matter. And there are a number of answers to this. Um, representations shape our worldview. I'm a lecturer in film studies, um, and also I'm particularly interested in film, and I've been looking at the history of cycling on the screen. And the frame I'm working with is like wider from the 1880s to the present. Uh, but I'm also interested in the question of what studying this history can tell us about the present, which stories are buried and which are visible. Um, since the early 1900s, when it's shaped our understanding of the world and our sense of place in it, uh, teaching us how to behave and how to think. Films aren't mirrors, they're not transparent windows, they're tools that reshape the world around us, they distort and reimagine it. Um, one of the most immediately obvious features of history of cycling films is that women and girls don't feature very much at all. When they do, images of women on bikes are often laced with ambiguity because from the 1880s onwards, uh, the image of a woman on a bike became a symbolic threat to the established social order. Uh, one of the first fiction films I came across, I came across, I came across, I came across, a feature called Her First Ride in 1907. Um, it starts with a, a middle-class woman buying a bike in a bike shop. She takes delivery of it home and sets off out of her front door, crashes into a gentleman in the top hat, and races off top speed, crashes into a group of picnickers, um, a nanny with a pram, a landscape painter. She goes through the painting. Um, at the square bashing soldiers, a farmer with a herd of sheep, finally crashes head-on into a car. Um, and the film finishes with uh, her struggling background, she's been punched and kicked, abused all the way around. She falls through her front door, she's got black eyes, and bruises, and a broken bicycle around her neck. Um, so it's a slapstick comedy, but it's also a film about the socially disruptive effect of women on bikes. Um, it's an image of social change as unstoppable. Take the fact, take the fact that she, the fact that she's, the fact that she's played. <laughs> Clearly, gives it, a, gives it another level of ambiguity because one of the anxieties around cycling women is that they would be more And this is in the context of social anxieties about men becoming more feminized in the face of mechanization. Um, so it's a formulaic slapstick comedy, and the spectacle of people learning to ride is everywhere in those films. Uh, um, there's a notable that Cathy released another film in the same year, his first run. It's the same narrative, but it's a man. Um, and at the end of the film, having crushed through all these people that chase after him, they catch him up and they look him up on their shoulders and carry him through the streets as if he's a hero. Um, rather than a terrifying, terrorizing nuisance. So, as Carrie recounts, women's cyclists often are on the receiving end of verbal and physical abuse. Um, and although male cyclists are often presented, what this pair of films really crystallises these different attitudes. The novice male cyclist 
There's a sporting hero, an atmosphere now cyclist, who's punished a target for physical violence. Um, and it's obviously difficult to say how far films shape these attitudes rather than just articulated pre-existing views. But um, it's notable uh, one of the films of T, reading a, a review uh, of ET from nineteen three on the film's release. Um, a critic attacked one critic, American critic, attacked the film for its misogynistic fantasies and wrote, We should all stop believing in fairies until someone makes a film in which little girls have adventures and bicycles too. Uh, and 36 years later, there are still far too few of them. And so this is why I think about representations and narratives of women's cycling is urgently important. Second reason why representations of women are white matter, as Katzworth explores, is that bicycles are socially progressive technology. One of the great literary works on cycling, which she talks about in the book, is the 1895 book, Wheel Within a Wheel, by Francis Willard, who is an American temperance campaigner and political activist and academic. Uh, the book's about learning to ride at the age of 53. Um, and it's a great book. It's wise and it's funny. And she describes learning to ride as a revolutionary experience. Um, it's like being born a second time, she says. Having spent a life devoted indoors to study, reading, writing, uh, speaking, learning to ride a bike really introduced her to the pleasures of physical exertion she hadn't felt since she was a child. And it was also a democratic machine, a social level for her, because everybody has to learn to ride in the same way. There are no shortcuts, um, no matter what the class is. It's also the basis of philosophical reflections for her on her place in the world. So she writes, I began to feel that myself plus the bicycle equaled myself plus the world, upon whose spinning wheel we must all learn to ride or fall into the sluice ways of oblivion and despair. That which made me succeed with the bicycle is precisely what it gave me a measure of success in life. It was the hardihood of spirit that led me to begin, the persistence of will that held me to my task, and the patience that was willing to begin again on the last stroke which failed. Um, and Willard was also convinced the bicycle was a tool for achieving gender equality, because riding a bicycle involves physical activity to start. Dexterity, stamina, and practical skills, because you have to know how to fix and maintain a bike. So she predicted the old fables, myths, and follies associated with the idea of women's incompetence to handle fat and ore, bridle and grain, and at last the crossbar of the bicycle are passing into contempt. Um, so, in some respects, looking back at the global history of cycling cultures 120 years later, it's a little depressing. Because it's clear that the social shifts that she was describing are happening extremely slowly and at different speeds in different parts of the world. On the other hand, the importance of representations within cycling is that they remind us of the possibility of change and that this everyday technology that's so ubiquitous as to be almost invisible still holds the potential for radical social transformation. Um, film in particular. Um, can offer us an emotionally powerful, persuasive account of the way bicycles open up new ways of being in the world, new identities. Um, a couple of examples, a couple of the most interesting examples I think of us, uh, Saudi Arabian film that a number of you will probably know from 2012. Uh, Saudi Arabian film, first being shot in Saudi Arabia by the first female Saudi director. Talked uh, about a 10 year old schoolgirl sees a bike that Beautiful American cruiser bike and bike shop, and 
wants it. So she she enters the Quran reciting competition at school and becomes a, an exemplary scholar in the hope of winning this competition to get the prize to find her, which she does. Um, and at the prize given ceremony, she tells the head teacher what she's going to spend the money on. She's so appalled, she confiscates the money and donates it to Palestine. Um, because the idea of a little girl or a woman by the time is, is abhorrent, it's like sort of a peculiar sort of abjection. Um, she goes home in the, the film and she finds that her mother has bought it. And she sets off, it's a glorious conclusion. She rides off down the road, races a male friend, a real brat, and overtakes him, ends up at a crossroads, trying to decide which way to go. And it's, so it's an open ending that captures the possibilities that are available to her. And finally, the most, the most inspiring representation of women's cycling I've come across in this research is a short um, documentary from 2015, a Dutch film called Nana Uh Very simple film about a Ghanaian woman with a nice Agatha Frimpong, who offers cycling lessons to the women. Most of them are middle-aged and older, but from a variety of countries, China, Syria, South uh, Pakistan, and they have a deep affection for uh, Agatha, as they call her. Um, she's helped hundreds of women to learn to ride, and the film takes you through the process. We see them just, first of all, struggling bikes with the authors in the team, then you go into an underground car park and learn how to steer. Um, and finally, she takes them out of the road. At the end of the film, it's a tearful uh, episode where they get the cycling proficiency certificate uh, that their family's watching. Um, and so the film makes a it's a very simple documentary, but it makes a powerful argument um, for the bicycle's enduring potential as an empowering machine that offers these women who are marginalized by age and gender, ethnicity, and language with greater agency and independence. So for each of them, a different future is made possible by an encounter with Oscar and with Agatha. Um, demonstrates as effectively as any film that the capacity of the bicycle to alter our way of seeing and being in the world remains just as powerful as it was to Francis Willard in 1895. Um, so Cat writes in the book, the tales we tell about cycling continue to matter as we use this material to make sense of the past, live in the present, and imagine the future. And for me, this is why cinema is important, because it's one of the sites in which we tell the stories. But more broadly, this is why the sort of historical research that Kant does is so important, telling new stories about the past in order to write new futures for ourselves. That's a hard act to follow. Thank you. <laughs> um, so my, my name is Emily, and I'm one of the founders and directors of a group called the Adventure Syndicate, um, of which I think a lot of you have probably heard, but in case you haven't, our uh, mission um, is to inspire, encourage, and enable other people, especially women, to challenge what they think they're capable of. And we do this exclusively through the means of the bicycle, because I don't know how else you do that. Um, and I, I think it was last year at Spink, we've been about a year ago, that Kat came up to us with great excitement, not a little fear, and enthused about this project. Um, 
and there was something so infectious about this excitement and fear that I remember thinking about it for the rest of the day. Um, we actually ended up in the pub after the event, I got after Cat, got after drinking more beer somewhere else, um, with a few, um, a few people from one of our sponsors. And I'd been turning this over in my head for the rest of the, ever since speaking to Cat. This, this realization that yes, you know, the, the world is designed for us, cycling is designed for us, bikes are designed for us, cities are designed for us, by people who aren't necessarily like us and don't necessarily understand what we need. And in many cases, though by no means all of them, these are kind of your straight, white, middle class, able bodied men. Um, and I was sitting in the pub talking to a couple of women of colour and a man who happened to be a Sikh. And we got onto the subject of helmets. And I'd always thought the whole helmet hair debate, and you know, every now and then a woman's cycling website will publish the sort of how to deal with having a hairstyle and also wearing a helmet. And I'd always thought it was a bit frivolous and just a bit of a space filler. But then talking to these people, I realised it was a major issue that in all cases was stopping them from cycling to work. It was just not anything that any of them had found a way around, and therefore they couldn't ride a bike. And it hadn't occurred to me that, of course, yeah, bicycle helmets were designed by someone who didn't see a problem with your helmet fitting closely around your head and messing up your hair a little bit. So some of us find we've got hairstyles that don't matter too much and are bothered by armor and heads that are the right shape. In my case, I have just decided to compromise and always have really bad hair and wear a cycle cap over it. But for some people, that's either not something they are able or willing to compromise on or simply not an option. And the people who designed the helmets, that just hadn't occurred to them. And this was a little bit of a unique moment for me. And ever since then, I've been noticing other things, big and small, in the world I inhabit, which is exclusively the world of cycling, that don't quite fit, or don't quite fit some people. And in a way, this is how we came up with the idea of the adventure syndicate, which I think is a much, I think I'd say, sort of a, a, deals with the softer side of people not quite fitting in, the world not fitting us quite right, and us having to sort of tweak it. Um, so it was about getting on three years ago now, and Lee Cravey and I, who are the founders, were um, having a rant, as we had been ever since we'd known each other. It was the same rant. It was the, what are we going to do about getting more women to do cycling, getting more women to do cycling in the way that we want them to do it, and generally, you know, why is this world just not right? Why do we not? And it sort of came to a head when um, Lee had been uh, talking to one of the sponsors about working with them for another year and having another year's worth of bikes to ride and so forth. And they said, yeah, absolutely. You know, we love what you're doing. We'd love to keep supporting you. Um, as long as you'll join this team. And it was a team that happened to have a very particular image revolving around immaculate nail varnish and such like <laughs> And there is nothing wrong with that. And um, I think there should probably be more immaculate nail varnish in cycling. But that wasn't something, I don't know if anyone here knows me crazy, she definitely wasn't going to fit into that team very well. Um, and I know I wouldn't. Um, so that deal went out the window. And she and I sort of puffed and puffed about how, the, you know, 
this world is we're just not feeling it. It's not right. And we sort of not in this many words, but we had a eureka moment and realised, hang on, we should be running things. Why are we trying to fit into this world that doesn't seem to accommodate us very well? Well, we've done enough, proved enough that we could just tell them how to do it. Because she had had various headbutts like this over her, her years in uh, professional cycling. And I, by this point, I think like, I've been a cycle career for a long time, sort of got to the top of that. I'd done a couple of big long trips and I'd started to become one of, one of the, you know, the four or five women in cycling people had heard of. But I didn't feel like I really was doing it right. And at that point, I think when I, in my early days, the only real woman in cycling anyone could think of was Victoria Pendleton, who again is fab, but she and I don't have very much in common. And I had tried, I tried to be a bit more like her, but it wasn't, it wasn't working very well. And I just accepted that I was someone who was not, you know, who was always going to be a little bit off to the side, what shape, but I'd never really get very far because I just didn't take in. And then we had this sort of revolution, which is like, right, okay, we're going to set up our own gang. And we did. And within about two and a half months, about a thousand people had said, yes, yes, we really like this, all over Twitter and Facebook. We'll come to your events. When are you going to have some events? And we realised we created a monster that we were not yet ready to take. But I think, more importantly, we suddenly understood that there's, there's a niche here waiting to be filled and everybody has been looking for someone to come and fill it. Or actually, everybody has been wanting to flood into this niche and join the gang. So the Adventure Syndicate turned out to go really well, and still is going very well. And actually, I was reminded when, when Bruce was speaking, um, there definitely need to be more representations, representations of women cycling on film. And there will be one here in about a month, I think. Alex, what's the date of the film? On the 9th of May, um, we have a film out this year. Uh, it's the film of Lee and another one of our syndicateers, Ricky Cotter, riding the route of the Tour Divide in uh, North America and uh, definitely not wearing nails. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
You should definitely come and watch it here on the night, as will make. Um, so we set up the Investor Syndicate, and very quickly we realised we had to figure out what our mission was a bit more beyond just only building site paperwork, etc. So we came up with this thing. We want to inspire and encourage and enable people, especially women, to, to challenge what they think they're capable of and to do more. But what do we actually mean by this? And we realised it would have to be quite an intricate, practical thing. We couldn't just kind of flag about on Instagram saying, look, be inspired, be inspired. We very quickly understood that as we talked to lots of people, there were all sorts of reasons why people weren't cycling or weren't cycling more, or weren't cycling as much as they wanted to, or weren't doing that thing that we secretly really wanted to and have been dreaming of for years but were too scared to. And we had these conversations, we realised it's a slightly different thing with everyone. And so our mission would have to be a very practical thing of going out and not arriving for a lot of people, figuring out what they needed, and then setting up workshops and courses and training camps and things to, to help them get there. But we've also, um, for better or for worse, we've become the people that people come to to say, right, I've got this terrible problem with my saddle sword, come have a look. Um, that's only happened once, but I, I have had a lot of conversations about saddle sword recently. I've brought it up myself. I wrote an article about it lately and did a lot of research, and now I can tell you much more than you ever wanted to know about saddle sword. But the, um, the, main, the main thing with saddle sword is it's a thing that shouldn't be happening, but it's a thing that possibly the majority female cyclists experience on a regular basis and just accept. So I think British Cycling did a bit of a study on it a couple of years ago, and they, uh, they heard, some women might have sounds, they did a survey of their female riders, and they found out that 100% of them had problems with sounds and often were in excruciating pain for a lot of their training sessions, and they just accepted that this is one of the sacrifices they would make for their career. And um, anyone who, with a slight ounce of kind of you know, objectivity or critical thinking or design interest would think, well, here's a problem that perhaps we could think our way around. You know, maybe the bicycle saddle is not fit for purpose if it's inflicting enormous pain on its user. So we, we did an event um, last year where a woman called Isla Rowntree, who's one of the, the big bicycle innovators in the UK did a workshop on Sandsor and she uh, made everybody laugh at the beginning by saying nobody would accept design for bike saddles uh, where the main point of contact is the tip of a man's penis. That's just, they say, that's rubbish, we won't buy it, go back to the drawing board. But somehow women have just uh, been expected, accepted, this is how it's going to be. Thankfully, um, there are now a lot of people innovating their way around bike saddles. So a lot of the main major saddle manufacturers are working with teams of pro cyclists and working with testers um, and actually doing in-depth studies of female anatomy, which I think is something people have been quite squeamish of for a long time. You can see the barriers here. There's, um, there's saddles that have been developed that are basically all cut out, so there's no pressure on any part that could be possibly, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to um, 
get too rapid. <laughs> so things things are coming on. Um, but uh, one of the important things I've realised is that there needs to be constant space for people to realise that these that these things are are problems. And the only way we can get there is by consciously working on the diversity of the industry that we are all so passionate about and all love so much. And this is something that we are trying to do, um, but obviously we should only go so far. Thankfully, I think everybody in this room is also um, that way inclined. So I think between us, we will, we will get there. Um, oh, one other thing I was going to say about um, there's quite a lot of designers, builders, inventors, and innovators that we've ended up working with with the Adventist Institute. Um, there are people designing bikes now to fit, you know, not just men and women, but every different sort of body. So if you are that way inclined and have a lot of money, you can get a bespoke frame that is designed for you, whether you have, you know, a male build or a female build, somewhere in between two, or just your own unique shape. Um, there are people now, um, I think particularly of Karen Hartley, who's based in London, but I know there are a few others, designing bikes specifically, often for quite small people, and they've thought of all these ways around the fact that it's often quite hard to put a much smaller body to the standard layout of bike. But, Another problem has arisen. So if you are interested in bike packing, which is something I've done a lot of, which is where all your luggage is kind of strapped into the crevices of your bike. So you have a triangular bag in the triangle of your frame, your tiny bag strapped under your seat, another one on your bars. Of course, if you're a smaller person, you will have less clearance in all those places. Therefore, you can carry less luggage. Therefore, you'll have less weight. So that's a good thing. But if you literally can't fit your sleeping bag anywhere on your bike, this becomes a problem. So we're constantly spawning more problems, but hopefully also more solutions. And I'm optimistic that with all of the people that we're trying to attract into cycling, there will be some geniuses and they will fix it and sort it out. But in the meantime, I think we applaud the genius in that who has in terms of her genius to illuminate those eras long past. And hopefully there's still a lot we can learn there. So thank you, Kat, for this book. And I encourage everybody to buy it and read it. Hi, everyone. So um, I'm Laura Laker. Thank you for the introduction, Maria. Um, my story actually starts um, with the story of the kitten. Um, so if you can leave that tonight. So um, it kind of leads into how I got into cycling and transport, so bear with me. Um, so when I was seven years old, I found uh, an injured kitten underneath the lawnmower in my front garden. And um, so me and my mum and my sister we rushed her to the vet, and um, luckily the vet was able to operate on her, and, and, but she ended up being a three-legged kitten after that, and uh, a great feature in my childhood, and a big character. But um, we discovered that, well, the vet reckoned that maybe she could thrown out of a, a car and um, became one of many animals that we had over the years who moved in with us randomly, um, who, <laughs> who were variously um, suffered on the road outside of our house. And it got me thinking, 
about um, the way that we use our roads and uh, actually inspired my first piece of uh, transport writing, which is a long poem about how um, stupid it was that we use cars all the time and how we should get rid of them all. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so my, um, my position has perhaps mellowed over the years, but um, fast forward to my university days and my friend Sylvia. Uh, was cycling to university every day and I was taking the tube and I looked at her one day. She came in, she was soaking wet with rain and she looked, she looked delighted with herself. And she said, you should cycle the tube. And I was like, are you serious? Uh, anyway, she somehow managed to persuade me. <laughs> and sure enough, she cycled in with me one morning. We lived in the same area. And um, I couldn't believe it. I thought, what is this thing I haven't been doing? This is amazing. It literally felt like London kind of opened up to me way that I could never imagine. I had so much freedom. I could just go where I wanted and it really was like London had kind of rolled out this sort of red carpet for me. And then a lot of people who get into cycling feel the same way. Um, and um, so I took my journalism qualification and afterwards ended up doing a volunteering at the London Cycling Campaign where I got um, really into the idea of cycling as a way to solve that problem of like how we use our roads and, and to improve the streets for everyone to improve our air quality and our health. And so I became a sort of evangelist, as many of us who cycle do. Um, and that's all I wanted to write about then, I think I'm obsessed with cycling. Um, so I became a cycling journalist, luckily enough. Um, and over my career so far, I've tried to make the case that, um, that cycling should be, you know, for everyone, that we don't need to be using cars for all of our journeys. I'm sure I'm speaking to the person here. Um, and that sort of ultimately mixing slow-moving um, living things with fast-moving motivations is probably a bad idea. Um, and so, as well as sort of writing inspiring stories, I've interviewed Emily before about her work with the Adventure Syndicate. Um, I've also um, got into annoying people um, by asking irritating questions, so, um, <laughs> which includes, um, as Pat said, um, ministers. So, um, yeah, I like to go for, um, sort of for councils, businesses and government who perhaps aren't doing the right thing and trying to encourage you to do the right thing by highlighting what they're up to. Um, challenging sort of lazy assumptions. Um, I wrote an article about the Lords who've been, um, who've been saying stuff in the House of Lords about how bike lanes cause congestion and pollution and um, how we should scrap them. So I emailed a few of the Lords including Lord Winston, who's a scientist, but nothing to do with transport, he's um, something to do with fertility, but um, considers himself apparently an expert on, on transport. Um, anyway, he wasn't able to provide you with any evidence to back up his, um, his theory. Um, he just said that um, it's like just were annoying, basically, and wanted to get So, um, yeah, so me, me and Peter Walker wrote some nice articles about that um, and, and sort of told them off. Um, and the, the minister, so... Um, that was Jesse Norman, who's a very nice man actually, um, but he'd written into British Cycling and various other cycling um, groups after um, the case of Charlie Alliston, basically telling, asking them to tell their members to uh, follow the rules of the hybrid code. Now, um, it turns out that a few months earlier he'd also written an article about the importance of um, following evidence um, and not sort of um, populist, um, headline-driven... <laughs> Yeah, so I kind of got him on that one. Um, 
wrote uh, about the being asked for being article calling uh, calling it headline grabbing hypocrisy and um, <laughs> he, he ended up writing a, an article back that started look for later um, accused me of like, that was probably the best moment of my journey so far. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, um, but he's a very nice man, as I say. So he invited me, uh, Peter Walk from the Guardian, into his office, um, and we and gave us an exclusive interview, which apparently um, to minister is a rare thing um, with the Guardian. So um, he said some great stuff. <laughs> yeah, who would have thought? Um, and, yeah, he said some really good stuff, and then um, and subsequently done subsequently um, got quite involved with finding out more about what needs to happen in order to. Um, help a 12 year old to cycle. Um, so, I don't know, that was, I don't know if that was, yeah, anyway, it happened, so that's good. Um, yeah, so, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, and um, also part of my job is um, occasionally uh, appearing on, on Sky News to defend cyclists um, for all the ills they've ever caused in the world. Um, <laughs> they always like to stitch me up with. <laughs> I go in and they've got the head of the licensed sex drivers association now. I hope you don't mind, we've just brought this other guy in. I'm like, okay, thanks, thanks, Or they put a sign saying killer cyclists under my face on the screen. That was a good one. Or um, lazy lifestyles, I had that one. Or um, cyclist collisions are drivers being victimised. <laughs> yeah, hey, it's all good fun. Um, <laughs> Anyway, when Kat asked me to uh, speak tonight, I was a little bit nervous because I'm more used to asking people questions and having to speak um, about my stuff. Um, but I have to say, I read the book and it's absolutely wonderful. And I think the enormous interest that you've had from the press um, is is not surprising because it really is. Once you pick it up and you start reading the stories of these women, you were able to sort of push back against society that was very, very restrictive on what they could do and um, what they believe they could do is, is just so inspiring. And, and there were a couple of moments um, where I, I was reading and I was like, yes, when they, when they managed to do what they wanted to do and they were kind of pushing forward. And I just thought, this is, this is wonderful. And these were stories that just wouldn't have been told otherwise. Um, and, we just, and we wouldn't have heard them. It's like you, you've said, you know, a lot of history is about men and what men have achieved. And by sort of linking these two things, the cycling boom and the patenting, which happened at the same time, luckily, and inspired all this innovation from women, among others. Um, you were able to tell these stories, previously untold, of these incredible women and, um, and what they were able to achieve, given what society expected of them at the time. So, yeah, I really can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, and um, of course, highlighted how inappropriate women's clothing was at the time. Um, because you, you kind of forget, it's only 120 years ago, but life was so different, and what people wore was so different. I mean, I probably would have had sticks in the stones wearing a skirt above my knees. Um, but yeah, so inventing, by inventing um, clothing and cycling, I mean, sort of opened up these opportunities of independent movement and really not only changed things to themselves, but kind of changed the world as well. You sort of push back on expectations, what people expected of them, and what and what women were capable of. So really important work. And um, yeah, so I think that's one of the great things about cycling is the way that it can make changes in the world. Um, and um, today, 
for me, cycling sort of reveals to us how hostile our streets have become and how dominated by motor traffic. I'm just sort of walking up here earlier and there's sort of five cyclists in this cement lorry and the cab is so far above the ground and it's just, I don't know, we've kind of accepted these dangers on our streets and it's, it's kind of not okay and I think it's, I think it's seeing more people on bikes on the roads that is sort of that contradiction between sort of the way that we used to use the roads and the way that we should be using the roads. Um, I think cyclists have given us that. And of course, women are underrepresented in everyday cycling. Just one in four uh, commuters in the UK are women um, on bikes. Um, and in sport, they're, <laughs> they're paid far less than their counterparts. So that's another thing that's um, it's really only. Um, but in terms of my specialities of everyday cycling, research tells us that women are a lot less tolerant of dangers on the road, a lot less tolerant of. Um, for cycling infrastructure, um, long detours, um, and actually benefit from safe routes, need safe routes more than men. Um, which is why cycling representation of women in the cycling industry is so important. Um, I was reading that um, women are 47% of the UK workforce and just 22% of transport workers. And it does kind of make me think, um, like Emily was saying about the way that the world's designed. Makes me think about the way the streets are designed, and kind of looking around, you realise that one streets were designed by people who think cars are traffic and bicycles clearly aren't. We need to do is sort of look at the bike lanes and suddenly end at junctions, and um, the cyclists dismount signs, and um, there's narrow chicanes. What are people with cargo bikes with children are supposed to do? What are people um, with wheelchairs or adaptive wheelchairs supposed to do in those situations? And, um, and the fact that people who've designed our streets have never had to do five sort of connected journeys with small children picking up shopping and going to um, appointments. Um, and, and so I think the lack of representation of women in transport helps to um, perpetuate these myths around cycling being sort of white men of a certain age um, rather than something in the Netherlands or in Europe, which is kind of for everyone. Um, Lizzie Danen, who was the 2015 Road Race World Champion, um, says something that has been said a lot, that you can be what you can see. And um, if you see other women out on bikes, um, as women would have done when perhaps inventions would have been, well, the original inventions would have been, would have started to sort of look at these women and say, actually, maybe I can do this. And I think it's the same today. I think a sort of lack of women um, on the streets and a lack of maybe not knowing people who cycle, maybe not knowing how to deal with these issues that Emily talked about, um, maybe helps to keep that um, disparity. Um, oh yeah, there was a, someone tweeted recently um, something about um, oh, cycling is for, for men of a certain age, why should we invest in infrastructure? Single mothers don't cycle and uh, one of the things that Twitter does brilliantly is these kind of comebacks, like about seven different women who happen to be single mothers, tweeted photos of themselves with their kids, like in the snow, like in the rain, like actually, <laughs> it's not the case. Um, and so yeah, I think that kind of that kind of shut that argument down. I think we need more of that. Um, um, yeah, and I think the reason why I was listening to um, a TED talk by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. 
uh, recently, who we talked about uh, single stories, and she talks about the way that it's so easy to kind of reduce people down to a single element of their kind of who they are. Um, so for cyclists, it's it may be all their aggressive guys in lycra, and actually by having these images of like seeing other women, seeing like mothers cycling with their children, they'll start to change the narrative and make it easier for kind of. I guess people building the infrastructure for politicians to think actually this isn't a niche pursuit. This is something that anyone could be doing and benefiting from. Um, and I, I thought that was a really nice way of putting it. This sort of single story helps us to other people, and about other people. Um, and it's the only way we see a group as diverse that we can actually understand. Oh, they're like us. They're just publicly riding bicycles. They're not this strange kind of alien breed. And that's why it's important to me that we hear women's stories about cycling. Um, and, uh, and that's why um, bothering politicians is important, I think, too, just to remind them that women out there are, are, um, are cycling and are going to annoy them if they don't, um, they don't step up. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, and so women like um, Emily, like the women in um, Kat's books, are role models, encouraging women, helping women to see themselves, um, you know, out doing what they want to do, what they dream of doing, going out into the world, just having adventures, just, you know, not worrying about nail varnish or whatever. Um, and, um, yeah, similarly, women in biking in cities is showing people, actually, this is something I can do. Um, women like George Walker showing that there's something women of colour can do, and they could do, you know, this is kind of a normal thing, it doesn't have to be, like, such a niche um, pursuit. Um, so I've always kind of been driven by this desire to sort of change the things that annoy me and um, to stop people and kittens being hurt by cars, um, help more people enjoy their cities, in, um, you know, which I think riding a bicycle does in, in a way that nothing else does, or a cyclist, so, um, so more than two wheel bikes. Um, yeah, so knowing, for me, reading that book and knowing there were women 120 years ago sort of pushing the boundaries in their own way, Kind of made me feel like um, you know I'm part of a sisterhood that goes back generations, and um, and yeah, I would doff my hat if I wore one to those women and um, kept writing this wonderful book. Uh, what a fantastic panel! Can we give a round of applause to all of you? so much for that, for those contributions. I think they're incredibly interesting, all those different perspectives on contributions of women, but also just contributions of the kind of diversity of um, people who ride bicycles, but also just try and do something different. Um, and I think that's what I'm just looking for across all the things that we do. Um, does anyone have any questions at all Yes, there
selecting that, and it was a few days, but decided to go for that rather than the better trying to raise the profile and the contributions that all sorts of different people make and the diversity of things from doing exactly what you're doing, what you're doing and everyone else I'm sure in the room is doing. So just keep doing that. I'm sure there's lots of people who want a piece of you. What's the weirdest question you've been asked? <laughs> That's already a good question. <laughs> I've been amazed how each project can be of interest to lots of people. I asked quite a bit about World War One, which I didn't expect. No. 
know, and uh, there was something um, about uh, women carrying disease, which I'm not quite sure where that was going. So I just told them what I wanted to say. I just went, I just left it, looked, and just continued with my narrative. Nowadays, they do sort of talk about the growth of women cycling and especially the fact that, you know, people in different parts of the country or even across borders, you know, say in Europe or America, you know, there's better communication um, and I think that's also part of it. But, but I'm just wondering because when you look back in history, say a few years before the period that you were covering, there were women that were out racing, um, there were a couple that took part in, say, the, the Paris Rouen, um, there was a woman called Annie Londonderry who apparently travelled around the world, um, you know, with a bicycle, I think that was back in the 1880s. So would you say that um, there was just not that much communication, say, between, say, the women that you're talking about and the ones, say, that were in America or France? Is that, would you say that was part of the problem? Um, yes, there was a lot of communication. There was a lot of formal and informal conversations that were having between people. So they were definitely building on and inspiring each other. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean I mean how much I mean how much were they inspiring each other though? I mean because the fact that there were for instance some magazine articles being written in America that were pro um, bloomers for instance. Um, but yet it didn't seem to catch on so much here. It's more of a cultural issue. There were so many people in Britain um, who would travel abroad and uh, write their travel diaries saying how amazing it was to be in France and not have to wear a skirt and be on a diamond frame bike and do all sorts of things that they wanted to do and then they'd come back here, try and do it for a day and then realise it wasn't going to work. So it was very much, um, while there were lots of discussions that were happening, um, it was very culturally shaped what was possible and the different kind of barriers that you faced and had to try and press against or try and make it bigger. So I think um, quite a lot of women were aware of what was possible in different places, just may not be possible here. And I think some of those barriers actually created impetus for the um, inventive responses, which, you know, convertible clothing wasn't really hit, as far as I can tell, in France, because they just got rid of the skirt. But here, there were many circumstances where that wasn't possible. So they had to they these, these barriers created the conditions right for different kinds of invention. So we were just a bit more we were just a bit more stuck up then. Sort of, I call it culturally shaped. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe I'll use your words. <laughs> Hi, thanks for the talk. I want to say I'm still doing uh, convertible cycling clothes. I wear cycling shorts under pencil skirts all the time, which gets some looks when I pull it up or push it back down. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, it's been touched on briefly, but what do you think the main barriers are to getting more women cycling today? That's a question for everyone who really. so I've, I've heard lots of different things, like my friends always say why they want to fight for them as a range of different reasons. So I wonder what the panel Yeah, or or anything. Yeah. Like I think why why don't more women fight for them? Yeah. Or a pleasing mode. 
um, well intended um, tolerate bad or dangerous routes less than men do. Um, some research by Rachel Aldridge, Dr. Rachel Aldridge, um, has shown that unfortunately, and also circuitous routes. Um, so if one player gets to a certain big regulars, then I don't know, women tend to give up disproportionately. So that's a major issue, I would say, in the region. Perhaps, I don't know, perhaps not seeing other women. We've actually done surveys on this with the event So whenever we run um, an, a big event or a workshop or a training camp or something, we send out a survey afterwards and we try to find out what the barriers are. We've got a whole list and get people to go around and tick boxes and things. The two big ones are always the ones we can't really solve, which are money and family work things. Uh, and you can extrapolate what you want from that. You know, generally, men set seem to be able to carve out time for themselves better than women, and that is often the model that you'll find. You know, the family, the man will take some time on the weekend, the woman finds it hard to do that. That's not always the case, I won't make any judgment about why that would be the case. Um, and then the next two down are things you can help with, which are practicalities like, I don't know how to fix puncture, what is something goes wrong with the bike, and I don't know how to navigate or find my way. And those are things that, in all sorts of ways, and we have uh, Jenny from the Bike Kitchen here, who's probably done more to help women learn to fix bikes than most people, than anyone, in fact. And, um, well, the navigation systems are becoming easier and easier, and we also have workshops to try and sort that out. So those are those are the top ones. But then I tend to think there's all the sort of the vague soft stuff about just not thinking that it's really something you would do. So I'm more into cycling than almost anyone I know, but I still feel inhibited all the time by turning up to, to a club run or something and thinking I really don't fit in here. I mean, the first time I went out with the people from Cadence a few years ago, I was literally awake all night before. And this was uh, this was three years ago. This is not ancient history. And I turned up. I was terrified. And they were all like, you know, muscly men in lycra. And there I was, not a muscly man in lycra. And I knew that they'd leave behind. And I knew that they'd all look at me and think, just belong here. And I made a point of saying, don't worry, if you drop me, I'm my own way home, it's fine. And of course it was fine. I kept up with it. It was no big deal. But... At that point, I was already quite an experienced cyclist, and I thought, if I have this problem, then what hope is there for someone who's just like eight months into her journey as a cyclist? And that translates to all sorts of things. I mean, I am aware that there's probably people who wouldn't walk in here tonight because they think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not like that, I'm a bit fat, I'm a bit old, I just I look rough, I don't fit in there. And these are the things that are, they're not impossible for us to fix. But it's complex, and I think all of us have to be aware of, I don't know, the image we're putting out as a community and how we can be more welcoming to people who might look at themselves and think, oh, yeah, Kat, you don't fit in here. What are you doing? So last year, I mean, last, no, two centuries ago. <laughs> Well, you'll all be dressed like this once you get my sewing patterns that are, that are officially kind of um, 
they've been launched online uh, and they've been downloaded quite a lot. They're they're inspired from the patents, the patents from the patents. Um, and I've got a number of printed versions here. So if anyone who's some people have already expressed interest, come and see me afterwards. There are also um, books, um, and we can and there are people in the audience who have been uncomfortably overheating as we talk, with smiles on their faces, who, um, I, if you want to see more of the costumes that um, incredible women um, invented uh, for um, convertibility, they are on people, and I'm sure they will show you how they transform. Um, thank you very much for that. I think we'll finish now. Thank you, everyone, for your attention and time. And if you like what we do, don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe. We're on iTunes, we're on SoundCloud. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.